realize we have a number of visitors with us here today. We have been going through uh, the book of Genesis uh, about 15 months, something like that. Um, and uh, if you have not been here for that or all of that, you're going to get everything all in one shot today. So, I told my uh, high school, Sunday school class today that it was going to take about four hours, and they said, go for it. Not to worry. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Today is Easter the day in which we celebrate the resurrection of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we look at the big picture of Genesis this morning, you would point us, as you did for Adam and Abraham, to Jesus. For this, we need your grace, so we ask that you would provide grace and mercy and peace and thanksgiving this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. A potential drawback to a lengthy, in-depth exposition of Genesis, as we've done for the past year or so, is that you may not see the forest for the trees. And examining the uh, remarkable trees has certainly been beneficial, but every now and then you need to step back so that you can see the magnificence of the forest itself. And that's what we're going to do this morning. From beginning to end, the book of Genesis delivers a relentless portrayal of the human predicament of fallen sinful humanity. And it's appropriate to begin with the problem of man, which is sin, because all of the following subjects of faith and grace and, uh, and Christ will come to provide the answer to man's problem, to man's predicament. An overview of Genesis reveals this neatly structured book and neatly structured themes. It's widely, widely accepted. The first 11 chapters cover what we call primeval history, the early history of the world. And then chapters 12 through 50 cover patriarchal history, the history of Israel's founding fathers. And Genesis is a finely crafted book. The first 11 chapters give us that primeval history of the world, do so by relating stories that all have the same structure. The fall, Cain, sons of God marrying the daughters of man, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. They all follow this fourfold pattern of sin, where sin is described, speech, where there's a speech by God announcing the penalty, and then grace. And God brings grace to the situation to ease the misery due to sin, and then punishment where God punishes the sin. But in all of that, there is amazing grace, because in all of the stories where there's this increasing avalanche of sin and the resulting punishment that seems to get increasingly more severe, there is always more grace. Adam and Eve are punished, but God graciously delays 
the death penalty. Cain is banished from his family, but God graces him with a mark of protection. The flood comes, but God graciously preserves the human race through Noah. Only in the case of Babel does the element of grace appear to be muted. This obvious need sets up the continuation of grace during the patriarchal history, which is found in Genesis 12 through 50. As we move into that section, we see that Abraham receives a gracious promise that through him, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And then we have throughout the rest of the patriarchal uh, history, the unfolding of that gracious promise. And despite the patriarch's repeated sins, God's promise stands. The salvation history of the patriarchal narratives functions as this gracious answer to mankind's scattering at the Tower of Babel. And so, as you have seen, if you've been here for any length of time, Genesis is all about grace. The Apostle Paul's uh, words in Romans 5, where he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, sums up the major theme of Genesis. Far from being a faded page fallen from antiquity, Genesis breathes the grace of God. It's good soul medicine. It's grace from the beginning, and it will always be grace. Now, in regards to man, Genesis is eloquent. Because as we go through, we learn that at the same time, man is truly wonderful and truly awful. The bulk of Genesis affirms our terrible sinfulness. And even the best of the patriarchs are helpless, hopeless sinners. No one ever comes. Not one of them ever comes to merit salvation. So we understand that even from the first, salvation can only come through faith. Moses makes it clear that's how Abraham, the greatest of the patriarchs, was saved. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Paul's going to allude to this multiple times in the New Testament, saying of Abraham in Romans 4, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. There's only one way that fallen humanity can be saved, and that's the Genesis way, by grace through faith. There's never been another way. So that's a big picture of what's in Genesis. And of course, it all starts with creation, and we're not doing verses today, we're doing chapters. So we start with chapters 1 and 2 and creation. Because creation itself is an act of grace. Nothing compelled God to fashion life. Our creation as human beings reveals God's grace even more profoundly. When we meet the first man, Adam, in Genesis 2, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Adam has been formed by God. He is a product of divine intentionality, the brilliant creation of the infinite mind. God has kissed life into Adam as he puffed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam isn't an afterthought. He comes from the mind and breath of God. And as the very first poetic line in the Bible has it, God created Adam in his own image, Genesis 1.27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And because Adam and Eve were made in God's image, they could do what no other creature could. They could live lives of the deepest devotion and morality. They could hear and even speak his word. Being made in God's image rendered them creative beings. So all of humanity's music and art and architecture and poetry came from being made in God's image. The first couple even had this God-given immortality. Though they weren't eternal but created, they would exist as immortal souls for all eternity, endless creations. And the earth is theirs to rule, Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And on top of all that, Adam and Eve walked with God in deepest intimacy. Nothing separated them from God or from one another. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden as vice regents of creation in this stunning state of spiritual and social perfection. But as you know, then we get to chapter 3 and the fall. Chapters 3 through 6 show us the fall. Of course, the fall came in this fatal act of moral autonomy. The word of God was shoved aside. And during Eve's tragic dialogue with the serpent, Satan perverted God's word. Then Eve revised it by minimizing the freedom God had given them to eat of the trees of the garden, by adding her own strictness to God's word that wasn't there, and then by softening God's word in regard to the certainty of death should they sin. And Adam, who'd been given God's word directly, witnessed everything that transpired uh, transpired between Eve and the serpent, and he never said a word. And when he saw that she didn't immediately die, then he sinned too, willfully taking the fruit she offered him, assuming there wouldn't be any consequences. And it was paradise lost. Guilt coursed through their naked bodies as they fumbled to cover themselves. The rustle of God's step brought dread as they resorted to this feeble attempt to hide. And guilty Adam admits no wrong, but indicts first, Eve for giving him the fruit, and then God for giving him Eve. And as a result, both the man and the women are cursed by God and cast out of the garden. And Adam and Eve fall from a very great height. Their fall is a catastrophic crash. And the authoritative interpretation of what happened also comes to us from Romans 5, where the Apostle Paul writes, Sin came into the world through one man, and death, through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Adam and Eve, in fact, both died right there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil while the taste of the fruit was yet on their lips. The theologian Henri Blochet explains, in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It's not the reverse of existence. To die doesn't mean to cease to be, but in biblical terms, it means cut off from the land of the living. It's still in existence, but a diminished existence. And Adam's and Eve's existence as they stumbled from the garden 
in animal skins is now one of death. And not only that, in a nanosecond, sin penetrates every sphere of their being like a drop of dye spreading out in a pail of water. They were immediately, utterly sinful. And the original couple has passed from life to death, from sinlessness to sin, from harmony to alienation, from trust to distrust, and from ease to dis-ease. And so it has been for every man and woman who's ever lived. The physics of an avalanche involved this ever-growing mass of snow and ever-increasing speed of descent that just sweeps over and around everything in its path. And here we have an avalanche of sin. And Adam's sin begins this avalanche of sin that just rolls over man's history. And yet even the fall of Adam and Eve flows with grace. On the occasion of Adam's sin, God didn't destroy him, but immediately engaged him in a conversation. And the ensuing judgment, a speech that he gave to the snake and to the woman, shines with grace. God curses the snake and then tells him, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But that curse contains the first gospel, indicating the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. In addition, God's judgments on Adam and Eve's fundamental roles would mean that nothing in their lives would ever satisfy them apart from God himself. Their perpetual discomfort in life is grace, and that from now on it would drive them to God. And with the story of the fall complete, God performs an act of grace, even as he executes their punishment. We see in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is amazing, astounding, abounding grace. It's clear that this covering is a sovereign work of God's grace, conceived and executed by God alone. It's a work that Adam and Eve could not, as of yet, even if conceived of, because it involved up to now the unprecedented taking of life. Their attempts to cover themselves in inadequate fig leaves are replaced by clothing made by God himself. Adam and Eve had attempted to cover themselves, but this covering comes from God. And God's provision of animal skins both recognizes their sin and yet was an act of grace. God's Action is this gracious gracious uh, foreshadowing of his sovereign provision for sin. It's a beautiful illustration of what God would do through the Lord Jesus Christ to provide salvation for all who stand shamefully exposed before him in their sin. God's provision of the animal skins shows us four things. First, that we need a covering for our sin. Second, that our attempts at covering ourselves are inadequate. Third, that only God can provide the covering that we need. And fourth, the covering, the covering that God provides requires the death of an innocent substitute. An animal had to be slaughtered to provide this covering from Adam and Eve. They learned that without the shedding of blood, there is no adequate covering for sin, but that God would accept the death of a suitable substitute. In light of subsequent revelation in the New Testament, we know that substitute would be the Lord Jesus to whom these animals pointed 
as a type. Even later in the Old Testament, no Levitical priest could read this passage without making the connection with the blood of the atonement because of the animal slain in sacrifice. God's provision of covering is a telling illustration of the method of grace in response to sin and its consequences. God covers our sin and humiliation. And the biblical picture of justification is a gift of the robe of righteousness. Believers are described several times in the New Testament as being clothed with Christ. And yet we see that first here in Genesis. This is the gospel in Genesis. And we've only gotten through the first three chapters. Immediately after the fall, we're confronted with the story of Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. And their offerings, and one was accepted and one was rejected. And the real difference between their offerings of Cain and Abel was in the attitude of their hearts. Cain came to God on his own terms, while Abel came on God's terms. And the rejection of Cain's offering and God's uh, uh, plea for his soul leaves Cain standing at the edge of hell. And then he steps off. And Cain's murder of Abel is not only a homicide, but a fratricide fratricide. The two brothers are direct offspring of their mother, the the mother and father of the whole human race. And I imagine they must have been very twin-like. Abel's flesh felt the same as Cain's. Abel's eyes were mirrors of his own. Abel's breath bore the same aroma. There's no technology to depersonalize Cain's murder of his brother. And Cain, too, has to leave. And when Cain goes out from the Lord's presence, he left full of disdain for God. The terrible story of Cain, as we move, uh, goes on, and we move straight into the even worse story of Lamech. Lamech is the sixth from Cain, seventh in the line. His story is a story of violence and vengeance. And how does God assess all of this? It tells us in Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It's hard to conceive of a more emphatic statement of wickedness. The words every only continually leave nothing out. Human depravity is not a temporary state. There's no relenting, no repentance, no hesitation. Lust was their medium and violence their method. And so the tragic bookend to this universal depravity comes shortly in the indictment of the whole earth as corrupt. And we see again in Genesis 6, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And sin's avalanche is roaring down upon the earth. But things are not all bad. There are moments of grace, even in these terrible stories of Genesis 3 through 6. We see some extraordinary men of faith. The so-called Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 calls our attention to three men of faith before the flood. Abel, 
Enoch, and Noah. The Genesis account of Abel's offering to God mentions neither his faith or his righteousness, but the summary in Hebrews 11 mentions both, twice referencing his faith. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So right from the beginning, faith and righteousness are bound together. Of course, death reigned in both the godly and ungodly lines. The Sethite genealogy is recorded in Genesis 5 with the stately cadence that repeats after every name, and he died. But when the genealogy comes to Enoch, who's the seventh in the line of Seth, just as Lamech was the seventh in the wicked line of Cain, sort of a parallel there, we read there that Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So how did God take him? Maybe it was similar to the translation of Elijah as he walked with his successor Elisha in 2 Kings and suddenly they were separated by horses and chariots and as Elisha gazed after Elijah, he saw him ascend in a whirlwind. We don't know exactly how this happened. The Bible doesn't specifically say, but we do know why God took him. It was because he walked with God, a term that describes close communion with God as if walking side by side. And we know that Enoch's walk was charged by his faith because Hebrews tells us. By faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So again, this early history links faith and righteousness and adds this dramatic translation of Enoch to heaven, demonstrating that faith is the sole ground of salvation even from the earliest days. However, most of Genesis after chapter 4 focuses in on the avalanche of sin that was crashing down. And then in the middle of the avalanche, we see there's one righteous man, Noah. We read, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And righteous Noah obeyed God and built an ark through which him and his family were saved. And that brings us to the story of the flood and the Tower of Babel. The flood and the Tower of Babel. And there's a flood, and, and Noah and his family are saved, and all is going to be right, and all is going to be good. Not so. Because immediately after, Noah disappoints us. We see in Genesis 9 that Noah began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard and drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And righteous Noah lays passed out drunk in his tent. And sin makes this immediate comeback. See, Noah's righteous life had been a thing of wonder in that depraved pre-flood world. However, when Noah steps into this new world, which has been washed clean by the flood, he brings sin with him because sin was inside him. And his son Ham then made his father sin the occasion of his own desecration of the family. And after he sobers up, Noah sees the sin 
that's dwelling in Ham, he sees that in Ham's son, whose name is Canaan. And he utters a curse that foresees the ruin of the Canaanites as the future enemies of God's people. It goes all the way back to Genesis 6. And in the midst of this depravity, though, we're reminded again that Noah is a righteous man. The only righteous man in existence at that time. He stands alone. This is the first instance of the word righteous in the Bible. And like Adam and Abel and Enoch, he walked with God. But what we have to see most of all is this is not a self-generated righteousness. Again, Hebrews makes that clear. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah's righteousness is credited to him by faith. This is centuries before God's declaration to Abraham. And faith produces this towering obedience to Noah. Four times the story tells us that Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. So we see that the person God saves is the one who believes God, who believes the word of God, and it changes his life. And we see the faith and obedience of the one righteous man. So you have pre-flood sin and pre-flood uh, combined with post-flood grace. Going into the flood, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and he was preserved but on the other side, we see him emerge into this virgin world, washed clean by judgment. And by grace alone, Noah stands with his family in the sunlight of a whole new world. I imagine it was glorious. And Noah's first thought, we're told, was of God, Genesis 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So there's worship, surrender, atonement, all in this new offering. This burnt offering represents total dedication to God. And thanking God for the grace that he had given to them. He's essentially saying, all of my life is yours. And God's response was also one of grace in Genesis 8.21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And God responds to Noah's sacrifice with grace to all humanity. And today we all live under this grace, even though the world's sin remains. And we come to the Tower of Babel again, we see this pattern of sin, speech, judgment, but there's no grace. And the lack of that grace sets us up for the history that's coming in chapter 12. The salvation history of the patriarchs functions as, to the, as the gracious answer to God scattering the people at Babel. So primeval history is all about grace. Grace to Adam and Eve, grace even to Cain. Grace to Enoch, grace to Noah, grace through the flood. And Paul saying, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, sums up the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Grace is rooted in creation, 
and chronicled in history. And from the beginning, it's been our only hope. But it's also, we see it repeated throughout the patriarchal history as well. And I'm going to focus in particularly on Abraham because he's the, the major figure. Here we see Abraham starting in chapter 12. He's called to be a blessing to the whole world. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So with the patriarchs we have this continual application of faith and righteousness and blessing through God's covenant people to the whole world. But nonetheless the patriarchs are still helpless, hopeless sinners. We see this sort of up and down roller coaster as we go through the lives of the patriarchs. Abraham's monumental faith enables him to leave Ur and travel to Canaan in obedience to God's word. But he gets there and there's a drought, so he has to go to Egypt and he lies to Pharaoh and says Sarah is his sister and not his wife. So he gets kicked out of Egypt in which the Pharaoh appears to be the saint and Abraham the sinner. And did Abraham learn from that? Apparently not. Because seven, uh, or a number of chapters later in Genesis 20, he lies about this again to another king, saying that Abraham, or, uh, Sarah is his sister. And then he has this dishonorable affair with Hagar. And in listening to his wife, who gave him Hagar, he abdicates his patriarchal responsibility, just like Adam did. And the assimilation of his nephew Lot into the life of Sodom left him so entrenched there, he only escaped when the angels grabbed the hands of Lot and his wife and his daughters and took them out, and then his wife was lost anyways. And Noah's history is replayed in miniature as the entire population of Sodom is destroyed. And yet sin refuses to go away. Every time God saves and rescues, sin comes roaring back. But Abraham still stands by faith from beginning to end. When he was told to leave Canaan, or to leave Ur and go to Canaan, to leave Mesopotamia. I mean, up until that time, he was a pagan. And yet he's the only person in that culture who heard God's word. And on the basis of hearing alone, he risked everything to follow God. His obedience was immediate. It was an outward evidence of his faith. And he leaves, and he doesn't even know where he's going. And we know that because Hebrews tells us, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So this graph of Abraham's life is pretty uneven. It's faithful, unfaithful, grace and sin. And reading Genesis is like riding a roller coaster. It soars when he hears God's word and he leaves 
Ur, and he's heading to Canaan, and he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. But then he has this folly in Egypt, and it drops down when he tries to pass off Sarah as his sister. And then he comes back to Canaan, and we see him being repentant, and it starts to go up again. And then it goes up dramatically as this dramatic rescue of Lot from the kings of the east. If you remember the story, he had got 318 of his best men, and they pursued these kings and saved Lot. And swords are wetted and spears are thrust into the sky. And 120 miles later, Abraham catches up with these uh, coalition of kings and they prevail and they deliver Lot. And it's this huge high point. How did Abraham do this? Where did he get the courage? It's because of his faith. He believed God that his land would go to his descendants and that God was with him and he knew God would keep his promise. But it's common in human experience that when you hit the highs, the lows are coming. When you have the victories, you have to beware of the defeats. And of course, that's what happens with Abraham. Because despite this great victory, he's still filled with doubt. He still has no heirs to take up God's promise. And fear grips his heart. And so begins this Dialogue with Abraham in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now Abraham, remember, he was a pagan moon worshiper. He's humbled, awed, and hushed under the stars. He says nothing. He's speechless. There's just stars in silence. And although Abraham doesn't speak, Scripture does. And it says that Abraham believed the Lord. And here his faith is defined. And it brings a landmark to our understanding of faith. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord and it counted it, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Various translations have uh, say this very different ways. Uh, one says he credited it to him as righteousness, or he reckoned it to him as righteousness, or he imputed it to him as righteousness. No matter what you use, it's now counted as righteous through faith in God. It's not the result of any accomplishment on Abraham's part. It's faith alone. But then God tests that faith. What's he do? Genesis 22. The most extraordinary demonstration of faith in the Bible, apart from Christ himself, his sacrifice of Isaac. He gets his heir. God fulfills his promise. And then he has to sacrifice him. And it's a test and an obedience. He takes him up on the hill and ties him to the altar and picks up the knife. And with his fingers trembling, holding the knife, emotion away. And we read, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven 
and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And how can Abraham do that? The answer is that he believed that he and Isaac after the sacrifice would return down the mountain together. Again, we have to turn to Hebrews for the explanation where it says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And the line continues after Abraham, and like Abraham, it continues with lots of faith and lots of sin. Lots of ups and downs, big curves, slow climbs, steep drops. We don't have the time to look in depth at the rest of the patriarchs, so we'll just take a quick glance at the lives of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Their lives remind us in a lot of ways of our lives. Isaac tossed a relational torch into the tents of his sons with a sin of favoritism for Esau. And the result was everybody sins. And his son Jacob becomes the prototypical deceiver. Deceit becomes Jacob's life. But he got as good as he gave. He winds up having to leave, flee Esau, go to his good uncle Laban. And he agrees to work seven years for Rachel, whom he falls in love with. And Laban, in league with Leah, deceives Jacob on what he thought was his wedding night with Rachel. And we come to one of the most stunning verses in Scripture in Genesis 29. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And then things got worse. In Genesis 34, we would come upon the rape of Dinah and the revenge of Jacob's son, Simeon and Levi, who would go on to deceive the Shechemites as a prelude to murdering their whole village. Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, sinned with his concubine in an effort to gain ascendancy over his father. In Genesis 35, all the sons band together to sell Joseph into slavery in Genesis 37. And just last week, in Genesis 38, we saw Judah get Tamar, his daughter-in-law, pregnant as she described herself as a Canaanite prostitute. And despite their many sins, and there's lots of them, Scripture tells us of this very real, although somewhat faltering, faith. And again, we turn to Hebrews, which says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff, and by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So we see from beginning to end the redemptive principle of history is salvation by grace through faith. All the principal characters are men and women despite their faults and their sins, tried to live by faith. So what are we to conclude of this? Well, principally that the book of Genesis, which is the sole record of creation, of primeval history, of patriarchal history, teaches us that man is both wonderful and awful. It spends more pages confirming his awfulness. But Genesis teaches us that humanity left to itself 
is sinful and helplessly and hopelessly lost. And all the rest of Old Testament history just confirms those conclusions. And even more, the New Testament's view of man, particularly that of the Apostle Paul, is neither new nor novel. It's in radical continuity with all the conclusions of Genesis. Now, Paul's statements are not so much Pauline as they are primeval. Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. You just pick your chapter in Genesis and that applies. And then we read Romans further in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can pick your patriarch. It still applies. It's foundational to what the Bible teaches. Our understanding of faith and righteousness and grace in Christ find their explanation in relationship to who and what man is. And it's particularly true of the cross because the cross only makes sense in the light of man's radical sinfulness. However, just as the sin is not invented by Paul but comes from Genesis, so likewise the New Testament's teaching that salvation comes uh, not by works but from the righteousness that comes by faith, which also comes from Genesis. Paul quotes Genesis 15.6, which we already read, the great statement about Abraham's faith. He quotes it in two of his letters, Romans and Galatians, demonstrating salvation comes by faith. In Romans 4, he shows that Abraham, grand patriarch, is counted righteous by faith, not by works. Gentiles, us, saved by faith. Because Abraham was a Gentile when he believed God. He counted it to him as righteousness. And then he quotes in Galatians, he says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is God's good news to the world, which would be affected by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so all the blessings spoken of in Genesis will go to those who, like Abraham, believe the word of God. As Dave Brenner read to you earlier, Philippians 3 for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All of Paul's arguments about faith and salvation are based on Genesis. The gospel's promise in Genesis of a deliverer from the seed of the woman who'd bruised the head of the serpent, preserved through the birth of Seth when God gave Eve another one, another man to replace Abel. Seth's line is preserved in righteous Noah through the flood. After the flood, Seth's line is preserved through Noah's son Shem and through Shem's descendant Abraham. And through Abraham's son Isaac, through Isaac's son Joseph, through Jacob's son Judah, and then beyond the history of Genesis, through a descendant of Judah, Jesse's son, David, to the line through whom the Messiah would come. And when Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, comes, he's born in Judah in the town of Bethlehem, and no one but Jesus has all these credentials. 
Christian, our faith is not something new. It's not some first century notion that by chance became popular in the ancient world. The Messiah is prophesied at the beginning of history. And the hope of his coming is amazingly and wonderfully preserved through all of primeval and patriarchal history. It's the unifying message of the scriptures. Salvation is now and always has been by faith in God's promise. Before Christ came into the world, a person's faith looked forward to the coming of the promised Savior. And since Christ, our faith looks back to the Savior who's come. Salvation has never been based on keeping the commandments or a person's good works, balancing out his sins. We're made right with God by trusting what he has said concerning his son, Jesus Christ, the only Savior who took our penalty on himself on the cross. And the recognition of the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter is not an isolated act of God. It is the pinnacle point in this ongoing narrative running throughout the scripture. It's the celebration of God acquiring a bride for his son through the ultimate price of death paid on the cross. And it's the height of God's radical redemptive purpose uh, and his redemptive pursuit of a sinful, broken people to secure them as the beautiful treasured bride for his son. Easter is the joyous celebration of the whole gospel, of the whole counsel of God, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, that God has gone to amazing great lengths to secure us for his son. And we're forever bound to Jesus by his death that purchased us and his resurrection that secured us, as Peter says, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's why for us, Christ is everything. And all of the Bible points to Christ. All of the Bible tells us that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. And ultimately, that's why we celebrate Easter. Christ is risen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we're so much like the people of Genesis. We can be faithful one moment, then deceitful the next. We can be unworthy. We can be trying to find favor with you, even knowing it's both impossible and wrong. And we make futile attempts to earn your grace. Lord and Father of us all this morning, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you that on that first Easter morning, his resurrection conquered sin and death and secured for us a home with him. Thank you. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.